What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. And a very good evening to all you Metsian folk. This is the Converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metsian podcast first half recap special. Uh, without further ado, let's get right into it. It has been uh, mostly a sad story, um, and, but, you know, we always have a good time one way or the other here on the Metsian podcast because uh, the Mets win or lose, are quite entertaining, and without further ado, let me welcome on, uh, before our featured guest, uh, I, I'm going to welcome on my co-conspirators uh, of the podcast, and let's start uh, up in Connecticut with uh, Rich Sparago. What's going on, Rich? Hey, good evening, Sam, and um, what's going on? Well, if I, if I told you um, <laughs> what was going through my head, we'd probably never get to everybody else, so uh, so I'll wait till we talk Mets, but I wish a uh, I wish it were a better story, but I look forward to talking about it tonight. Well, it's it's a story, uh, but a better one is exactly what we hope uh, we have eventually. And uh, let's go down to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, where Mike LeCollant is standing by. What's going on, Mike? What's going on, fellas? Uh, this old song from the 70s, Hot Child in the City. Temperature's raising, man. It's getting hot. <laughs> That it is. It's hot out here. I'm uh, for all of you who don't know. I am currently in Denver, Colorado, on location, and uh, it is hot out here too, but a lot drier. It's uh, noticeably less sweaty. Uh, but let us bring on our featured guest. He is uh, uh, writes about the Mets on Metsmerized. Uh, Mets, excuse me, MetsmerizedOnline.com and MetsMinersNet. Uh, he specializes in the minor leagues, and during the summer. He covers the Brooklyn Cyclones from MCU Park, and uh, during the rest of the year, he is a communications student at Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. He became a Mets fan in 2006 and still roots through the good times and the bad. And you also, uh, you, you're not going to recognize the voice because it's aged some since he was uh, he broadcasted on SNY as a winner of the Kidcaster contest, but he got to call a Jose Reyes home run back in 2011, and what a Fantastic job he did with that. And without further ado, let us bring on Jacob Resnick. How are you doing, Jacob? Hey, Sam. Uh, great to uh, be with you guys tonight. Um, you know, like you, uh, like you guys said, it's been uh, quite a quite a first half of the uh, of the Mets season. But I'm uh, looking forward to uh, talking about it with you guys tonight. And you know, Sam, you and I have known each other for uh, a couple of years, more than a couple of years now. Um, I first met you. Um, you know, I want to say five or six years ago, maybe now. Um, and Mike and mm-hmm. Rich, it's uh, it's, a ple- it's a pleasure to be on with you guys tonight. 
Well, uh, before, you know, we get into the thick of it, and we really do appreciate you joining us, and it's uh, great to hear your voice, Jacob. Let's uh, just go back in time and to, uh, you know, how you kind of got started with the Mets, uh, as well as, um, you know, just your, your overall history, uh, you know, from a from a geographical standpoint or otherwise. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm uh, born and raised in New York City, Manhattan. Um, first I guess I, I was first aware of the Mets in 2005 um, when I was five. Um, and then it wasn't until 2006 where my, my fandom really started um, coming alive. And I was just became obsessed with uh, everything baseball and, and everything Mets. Um, and obviously 2006 was a, a pretty good year to, to get into baseball. Um, you know, especially if you're, uh, if you were watching the Mets at the time, um, unfortunately, um, the years following weren't weren't as exciting, um, but uh, still, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to to be able to attend a lot of Mets games since I live so close to the stadium. Um, and uh, like you you mentioned in the open, 2011, I uh, I applied um, and auditioned for the SNY Kidcaster contest in 2011. That was the third year that they did that. Um, and I was very blessed to uh, to win the contest, and I sat down and uh, on the first pitch that I uh, took over from Gary Cohen, uh, Jose Reyes hit a hit a home run from the right side of the plate, which uh, which was uncharacteristic of him. He didn't hit a lot of home runs, especially not from the right side. Um, so it was really a uh, unbelievable moment, um, especially for me being just 11 at the time. Um, and then the year. Uh, following in, in 2012, I um, was given the uh, great opportunity to host Kids Clubhouse, co-host Kids Clubhouse uh, on SNY for, for that season. There were six episodes that year. That was a lot of fun. Um, and that's really kind of started my um, passion for, I guess, broadcasting at the time. And then that kind of morphed into writing. Um, and uh, in 2013, um I, I joined Netsmerize, um, which is the site that I'm still with with now, um, and I've really had a, a, a great, uh, great few years um, being able to hone my writing skills, uh, get to meet a lot of people, um, both uh, over over the internet and in person. Um, and uh, within the last couple of years, I've gotten super into the minor leagues, um, learning a lot about what goes on down there, players. Um, watching a ton of video, uh, writing some scouting reports, uh, if when possible. Uh, been able to cover the Brooklyn Cyclones for three. This is my third season now, um, so it's it's really kind of uh, you know I'm still I'm still a, a Mets fan at heart, um, but I've really been lucky that I've uh, had some experiences that kind of go beyond the uh, just the the basic fan level, uh, and it's kind of. Uh, gotten to the point where I'm hoping to, you know, have a career in, uh, in baseball going forward. You know, I'm really impressed with the way you cover the minor leagues. You really get and basically every level of them, you know, other than just the Cyclones, you really do a fantastic job. And we we're certainly going to pick your brain about that. My question for you before I pass it on to my, my, uh, uh, compadres is do you, do you do you maybe see yourself getting back down the broadcasting lane eventually? Uh, you know, obviously you were young at the time, 
but you did seem extremely natural at, at the way you called the game, and you had, you had already picked up on a lot of the details of, of how you're supposed to go about calling a game from masters like Gary Cohen. Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, I watched, I watched him so much um, in you know, my, my formative years of coming up as a fan. Um, love listening to how he rose as well on the radio. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, broadcasting, obviously, cause that was what I was watching on TV every night as an eight, nine, 10, 11 year old, um, was kind of the first thing that I, um, really saw as something that, that I could, uh, possibly do. And obviously I had a lot of fun with it, um, for a few years and then I discovered writing and, and I've, you know, I've, I've uh, enjoyed that, um, very much. And, um, and I've gotten to do, uh, especially at Quinnipiac, uh, just, this was my, fr- I just completed my freshman year. Um, we got to do some broadcasting for a whole bunch of sports, including baseball. And that was a lot of fun. Um, right now, I feel like if I'm going to devote myself to one specific lane, um, that, that writing might be, might be that. And, you know, covering a team on a, on a daily basis. Um, but, you know who knows who who knows for uh, for for the future what uh, what I'll fall into, um, and I'm certainly open to to doing a lot of different things, um, even more than just uh, broadcasting or writing. I um, I do a lot of photography at the Cyclones games for uh, for using in my articles, um, and that's certainly something I enjoy. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of uh, kind of open to to really experiencing a lot of different things right now, but. Um, if I had to guess on, on where I end up uh, in the future, I'd say I'd say writing, but but obviously uh, things can change. Of course, you know you just have to kind of you know pick up the clues and, and go with uh, go with what your gut t- tells you as it as it comes your way. Uh, so let me first pass uh, on before we really get into the thick of it to Rich. Well, no, Jacob, thank you for joining us tonight. And as I'm listening, I, I'm thinking. It seems like your your baseball uh, tenure, if I should say that, has been very precocious. I mean, you you did at eleven, you were on TV. At twelve, you were hosting a, a show, you know, the kids clubhouse. And at thirteen, if I did the math correctly, you joined uh, Mesmerize Online. So um, that's a lot by the time you were thirteen. And so I guess I guess what I want to say is kudos to you for you know doing so many things at such a young age and um and you know and and in terms of you know Sam actually asked the question I was going to ask which is what because it seems like you do so many different things and do them all well what would be the path you'd want to take and it sounds like it's more writing so um and you know all I could say I don't have much to add other than to say you know it's nice to have you on and, and good luck to you and and it sounds like uh, you're you're quite an accomplished young man no thanks a lot Rich I appreciate that and uh, go ahead, Mike. Uh, Jacob, I, I will only say congratulations, and I'll offer these these little kinds of words of advice. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Uh, it seems like uh, you know you, you're doing a swell job on your own. So uh, just keep at it. And uh, you know, if it wasn't for the Cyclones, I don't know what kind of a nut of a Met fan I'd be right now. Uh, they keep me level-headed. I'm familiar with your work over there. So I just want to say thank you. And congratulations again. Thanks, Mike. 
Yeah, and again, thank you for joining us tonight, and, and looking forward to hearing some of your opinions on. Oh, oh, well, should we should we start with the chair, guys? I, I guess that's the <laughs> let's let's work backwards, uh, um, basically uh, throughout the entire first half. I, I mean, how much recapping can we do? Uh, and Jacob, we're going to start with you, of course, uh, since we all know that the bullpen is the the biggest issue of this team right now. Uh, um, and Brody's frustration level is obviously, uh, you know, just reaching a fever pitch. And uh, first I want to give him props, actually, for going into the, the belly of the beast, although a lot of people were, were giving the seven-line army uh, uh, some flack online for not being bullies uh, towards Brody about, about things. But, you know, I, I, I think that when – somebody's actually in front of you as a person, you, you, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to just be like, get a bullpen arm, get a bullpen arm. But, uh, it, you know, I, I was wondering, what do you think of the chair incident? Obviously it's all sources, uh, uh, but do you, do you think this is the way he needs to handle it? Or is it just a complete and utter shit show? Is, is that basically what all of this means? Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously uh, it's important that Brody is is constantly um, having conversations with the coaching staff and that those conversations are not filtered at all. Um, I do think the um, the timing of the of the the meeting uh, with the the throne chair. Um, right. I mean, there's so little time between the game and Nikki Calloway's post-game press conference that for them to have gathered and for it to reach the point where a chair was thrown, um, just I I feel like that happened um, just at, at the wrong time. Um, and I I do feel like it's it's more of a, a representation of Brody really being in over his head right now. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the seven line, uh, I don't want to say incident, but the, the seven line, um, you know, the, that game where, where he sat with them and that, you know, I felt like that was really a lose lose situation for him because he either didn't fit with them and then he gets called out for not, you know, uh, holding up his, his word, um, or he does fit with them and then people, um, you know, call him out for, for spending time with, you know, I, you know, obviously people have their opinions on, on the, the seven line army members. Um, but I, I think, you know, with, with I guess this goes back to the, uh, the Callaway um, incident with, with Tim Healy of Newsday, which I'm sure you've talked about on, on past episodes, um, you know, just Callaway's actions and Brody's actions just to me really represent that he's uh, kind of uh, barely treading water right now at this moment. Yeah, you make a lot of good points about it, that it, it's just not going well. I mean, Rich, you have to say that all the moves that he's made have just basically not won maybe the J.D. Davis move, but most of these moves have not gone well. But could you have really foreseen all of these blowing up in his face? No. I, I think what's happened here has been, look, you know, we all raised eyebrows at the Cano-Diaz deal with the prospect. Now, some people said, oh, stop prospect hugging. You know, you have to go for it. Fine. But even I think even those people recognize taking back Cano might be a bit risky. The, and Diaz to go from second most saves in a single season to, to what he is right now 
How could you have foreseen that? Um, everything he's done, I mean, you know, signing Familia, Familia should not be this bad. I mean, you know, he had his moments as, as moments as a Met uh, in his first go-around where he would have, you know, some pitching slumps, so to speak, and, and go through times of being bad, but he's dreadful. And, and everything Brody has done has just basically gone wrong. And, and um, to, to quote Todd Zeal from, from the, uh, the pregame show today, if you were betting these things in Vegas and, and put money down that every one of these things is going to go wrong, you would have gotten incredible odds back because it's just very unlikely that you could look at you know, five or six moves that this guy made and every one of them absolutely tank. Even the J.D. Davis move. I don't even know that we could evaluate that one until we see how those prospects do in Arizona. So, um, no, you know, I could not have anticipated this, which is a two-edged short, because either it's oh my God, you know, the sky is falling, or it's it's got it. The worm has to turn because he, you know, Cano is not a bad baseball player. Edwin Diaz knows how to save games, so you could look at the positive side and say this worm has to turn, and maybe it will. You know, maybe it will. But I want to, you know, just comment on the, that seven-line thing. I agree with Jacob. I mean, the man was between a rock and a hard place. That's that's Brody. He had he at the end of the day, he had to live up to his commitment, and so he did the right thing. If he bailed on that, he would have just set himself up for worse abuse than he's getting already. So that's that. Um, and about the chair thing, uh, you know, again, I agree with Jacob here because. What it's indicative of is a man under pressure. You know, when people are under pressure, they do stupid things. They do emotional things, and that's what's happening. Um, so, yeah, I think you're seeing a couple of people probably, both Mickey and Brody, who are clearly demonstrating that perhaps they're in over their heads. And I don't know. I mean, it, it, are they suddenly going to find their way through this and mature into their jobs before our eyes? Maybe. Or do change need to be made? I think we all know where the, that change is going to be. Um, it's certainly not going to be Brody. It'll probably be Mickey. So you know, those are my top-line thoughts. And we all know where the change really has to happen, uh, but there's nothing we can really do about that. I mean, I, I think it was Friday night, Mike, where you started finally hearing some Salvatine chants. <laughs> like you say, very unlikely. Uh, in the meantime... Brody Van Wagenen is running out of ways to promote his narrative. Uh, yeah, indeed. Look at his transactions. Uh, Keon Broxton, Rajah Davis, Carlos Gomez, all inconsequential. 36-year-old Cano, underachieving, 239, 287, 361 slash. 35-year-old Jim Larry has yet to play a single game. Edwin Diaz, 1-6 and six with a 5.5 ERA, 1.5 whip, rounded off. Uh, you know, he, he's he's not the biggest problem in the bullpen, but the bullpen is indeed the Mets' biggest problem. Uh, uh, Wilson Ramos, proving to be a major defensive liability, and Mets pitchers are starting to openly express their preference for Nito. That's a problem, familiar, uh, woefully inefficient. Uh and costly, very costly, and, you know, uh, consider Luis Avilon and Justin Wilson, injuries. Uh, J.D. Davis, you guys mentioned, is indeed the lone bright spot uh, amongst his acquisitions, and yet the guy has few supporters. He doesn't have a position. He's playing backup to Todd Frazier, and, he, you know, he has an occasional, he's an occasional contestant in left, in left field. 
so quite literally all of his acquisitions have more or less failed him. He's done everything he can with the roster in lieu of spending money. He's hired coaches, and he just finished berating another pair of coaches. Throwing a chair, who doesn't get pissed off? But to me, uh, it, it, it reeks a little bit of amateurism, as Jacob alluded to, and, and not for nothing, but when you put the three together, Mickey, Brody, and, and Jeff, that triumvirate, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a, a, a triumvirate of amateurism. It really is, and, it, and it's really uh, it's really coming through now. Uh, Brody lost it. He blew a gasket. He needs to handle this better. He's paid to be the front man of this organization. He was brought in here to change the narrative, to change the perception of the Mets, to go from, you know, uh, methodical Sandy Alderson and, you know, baby boomer, you know, et cetera, to young, vibrant, uh, GQ front page type you know stuff and he's failing miserably so before I, I go any further I'll just leave it at that well I guess uh, you know a compliment we can throw both Mickey and Brody's way they are some uh, some GQ handsomes uh, going on right there uh, but uh, that's not going to win you games that's for sure uh, you know uh, it, 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 Ron Darling still had to pitch well, uh, and so did Keith Hernandez when they were they made uh, some GQ appearances. Um, and you know Matt Harvey found found this out the hard way that you can't just uh, be Joe Namath uh, without also being a Hall of Famer. So um, there's so many different places to go here, and, and you know I'm looking at some of our pre-game notes. I'd like to get specific about uh, Ramos because. Uh, last night, Edwin Diaz threw mostly fastballs. Uh, it was something that uh, the hashtag, uh, not the hashtag, sorry, the, the handle on Twitter, Star Blazer, Star Gazer, I believe. I got to double check that just to give him the problem. Star Blazer, excuse me. Uh, he mentioned to me uh, before that maybe Edwin Diaz needs to just throw all fastballs. And, and Jake, Jacob, apparently this was Nito's idea. And it, it, it like, you know, like uh, Mike said, it is becoming more evident that people like to uh, uh, pitch to Nito, and he's starting to get a little bit more. Um, I believe it's a two-year deal that we got Wilson Ramos on. Wilson Ramos's hitting hasn't been all that terrible. He he had some dry uh, stretches, but I mean, he's flashing 270 uh, on the year right now, and I have to look up the rest of the numbers. But how much of a liability is Wilson Ramos currently? Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's kind of just it, it. The situation is what it is. I mean he's he's under contract. He was brought in as one of the the big signings. Um, you know Travis Darno was was um, was not given a a shot at being the starting catcher. They were kind of they were tired of trotting him out there, underperformance injuries. So they went and they they uh, they got one of the top catchers on the market on a pretty good deal actually at the time. Um, but, but he's there. Um, and, and the hitting obviously got off to an awful start. Um, and it's been better, but, um, uh, it's kind of 
a low bar after how he started. Um, and and Tomas Nito uh, is kind of a, a guy that has uh, never really been given a, a, a full time chance, um, but he's been he's been around for for quite a couple of years now, um, and he's he's homegrown unlike Ramos, so a lot of these pitchers have uh, have been familiar with him um, over the last uh, you know few years as they were coming up, et cetera. Um, so I I think it's certainly something that uh, you know if they weren't um, if they if if they were I would say if they were out of it, completely out of the uh, out of the race they would just they sh- should in my opinion hand hand the the duties over to uh, to Nito but I think uh, you know making making a big switch like that um, less than a year into into the uh, the contract of Ramos is um, kind of admitting failure which is not something that um, you know Brody or or I should say Jeff Wilpon who um, is really the one make it, who would make such decisions like that um, would really uh, like to admit um, at, at such an early point in time. And uh, Mike, he signed for, it looks like three years, uh, although I think that third one might be a team off. Um, and yeah, so, you know, you're the one who, who mentioned it. Why don't you run with it as well? Well, I'm agreeable to the money. As Jacob says, for as long as these are short-term deals, you, you know you can you can deal with it, and you can maneuver around it. Uh, but if we're speaking specifically of Wilson Ramos, uh, he's throwing out runners at a 13% clip. That's more, well, that's you know more than half of the league average, or should I say less than half of the league average? Uh, and that's not good. He he's on the verge of uh, tying his career high for pass balls. And, and I said it before, he's just turning into a liability behind the plate. And while he has a competent bat, that's not what I need out of my catcher. I need a receiver. I need a supreme receiver. I need somebody who my pitchers are very comfortable throwing to. First and foremost, I need somebody like a Jerry Grody if I have to pull somebody out of the hat. Uh, you know, and, and let my slugging and power come from other positions. Uh, you know, so he doesn't fit my... Uh, ideal for the catcher's position, uh, far from it. And if the Mets aren't careful and manage his time, uh, I, I believe he carries too much weight for his knees. He might be another candidate. I mentioned in the last podcast that I, I desire for Robinson Cano to lose some weight in bulk. I think uh, Wilson Ramos should shed a couple of pounds too, uh, just for the sake of uh, you know continuity and keeping him on the field. Rich, Mike makes a good point. I, I mean, you you know, you want some athleticism uh, behind the plate these days, and Ramos just hasn't been giving you that. Uh, he's he's obviously a mammoth fellow. I mean, you know, you, you just one of the first things you notice about him is how humongous he's a giant. Um, I, I think it's going to be too early to say that he would be one of the people you try to move. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, uh, you know, and we'll we'll get to a little deeper into the trade deadline talk. Um, but I, I I could see with the team option coming up, um, if if he's not really working out, this could be something they try to do in the off season. Well, you know, right? Because typically, you know, rentals. Sure, he's not a rental though, because he's signed for another year of the team option, so he's not. He doesn't fall into that category, and. Um, so 
get, getting to that offensive point, you know, he, he's hitting 275 with nine home runs, and so, you know, that projects to roughly, you know, figure 275 for the year, maybe 15 to 18 home runs, which isn't awful offensive production from your catcher. Problem is, you know, like Mike said, defensively, it's the throwing out of base dealers at 13% is really bad, but worse than that, he just looks lazy behind the plate. And I know that optics, you can't measure them, and I totally get that, but if you look, he, he doesn't seem to go hard after balls in the dirt, and it's just it's not a good look. And when you hear pitchers saying that they don't want to pitch to him, it also tells you that, you know, clearly he doesn't call a good game um, and because where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, if you have two accomplished pitchers saying, look, I, I, you know, we'd rather pitch Anito, there's definitely something there. So what the Mets really have in Wilson Ramos is kind of half a player. You know, he, he's okay offensively, that's fine. Um, his defensive package is generally pretty bad. And so you have half a player. And, um, you know, and I wasn't a huge fan of the signing, and, and the reason is because it's actually not manifested itself was his injury history. I felt that they'd be battling that all year. He'd have multiple stints on the IL, which he has not had. But if you look at it, you, you know, I guess they went after Grandal pretty hard. I don't know what they could have done to maybe change. I guess he wanted to go to Milwaukee, felt they, you know, had, having been in the NLCS last year. Excuse me. Um Maybe that was it, but I don't know. I, I, I was never a fan of the signing, and essentially what you have is a guy that who probably isn't movable at this point, and like I said, in my opinion, is basically half a player, and, and I just don't know. Mets have enough of those. You know, It's unfortunate. I think they're kind of stuck with Ramos at this point. Yeah, uh, they're going to be stuck with a lot of people, uh, it, it seems, um, because you know there's, there's only so – if, if somebody is performing uh, how they are for you, that reputation can be out there. And so the question is who would necess- you know, who exactly would necessarily want them right now? Um, I, I'm going to go off. We're going to go off real quickly uh, from the first half talk and talk a little bit about the All-Star uh, game because I just saw something about Christian Yelich. Uh, he's dropped out of the home run derby. He's been replaced by Matt Chapman. And we had one of our fellows um, who will be performing in the home run derby, and that's Pete Alonzo, of course, uh, who hit his 30th home run. Um, and so it kind of falls into the category of first half because we're going to talk about something good regarding the Mets. And, Jacob, um, I, you know, a lot of people have talked about these home run numbers being broken uh, left and right all around the league and, and has something having to do with the teams being a little bit, um, I guess, uh, wound tighter. They, they, they don't stand up. The, the grip is not as it's not as easily to grip, and maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Obviously, I'm not uh, uh, very eloquent in talking about what I know about the, uh, the new baseball. Um, but, you know, home runs are just getting hit left and right, but I don't think Pete Alonso is just a, a uh, what happens when – home run numbers are dropping all over the league. I think he basically he already has that power, and because they've made it, they seem to have made it easier to hit home runs, this is what you're going to get. You're going to get uh, Pete Alonso 
showing the the world what he can do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I don't think any any of what Alonzo has done um, in the first half should be um, discredited whatsoever. Um, and and just personally for me, because um, we mentioned how I've covered the Brooklyn Cyclones, my first year out there was um, 2016, and that was Alonzo's uh, first year after he was drafted. And he was out there, and it was just unbelievable to see him. And and you could tell even then. Um, when he was fresh out of college, um, just how much better he was um, than than the other hitters around him. I mean, I did just every ball that he put in play, um, you know, had exit velocities, um, you know, well over 100 miles an hour, um, and it was just really impressive to see and to talk to him, um, and just and and you know, you everyone's seen it since he's been in the majors, just how um, really. Um, uh, really smart and, and in tune to all of his at bats um, and and hitting just how how he talks about hitting um, was really impressive. So he's just, he's just an impressive um, guy to to watch and to listen to. Um, and you know just because the balls might be wound tighter or whatever, I mean there are some uh, some balls that he hits that that look like they're going to be shallow pop outs um, to right center, and they just keep carrying. And carrying and, and go over the fence. Um, so this is this is a strong, strong human, um, and I, it's just unbelievable to think about the fact that the Mets um, are going to have him under uh, under their team control for the next six seasons, and, and we'll be able to uh, to watch that night in night out. Uh, and really, the most impressive thing to me um, has been his defense, um, because that was was something that was um, really kind of uh, made public that he had, you know, struggles, struggles in the field. And I, I never thought that it was anything major that would prevent him from ever being able to play in the national league, as long as there was no DH. Um, but he's, uh, you know, really, really worked hard. Um, and I got to see uh, in spring training um, when I've been, been down there um, and, and gotten credentials and gotten to go onto the backfield. And, and I've seen him work, uh, you know, where he's basically uh, pleading with the coaches to hit him more, ground balls um and he's really worked hard on that and he's, he's looked well well more than passable um at first base this year but um yeah i mean just with with how uh how frustrating the rest of the uh the first half has been for the mets that that's just been an unbelievable bright spot uh before we move to mike and rich uh, on this i want to go back to uh talking about brooklyn um uh jacob with I mean that ballpark in Brooklyn, and I've had some time out there as well. Uh, that's a hard place to hit home runs uh, because you're facing the the ocean. So, what, what were his power numbers like in that ballpark? Yeah, you're uh, you're absolutely right. Um, it's uh, notorious for um, killing power. Um, well, first you you know, you've got the fact that it's a short season league, so. Um, Guys are are coming off their college seasons and they're um, you know tired after after playing you know close to 50 60 games in their college seasons and, and then they've got to play 72 more once they uh, once they get to Brooklyn. Um, but you, you've got the ocean blowing in from right field and uh, it, you know everyone likes to uh, call on the story about how Ike Davis came in um, in I believe 2008 was the year he was drafted and played in Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, big left-handed power hitter um, was supposed to come in and, 
to uh, do some big things there. And I don't believe he hit any home runs uh, at MCU Park. Um, so definitely a, a tough uh, tough park to hit in. Um, the air there is not really conducive to uh, to hitting lots of home runs. Alonzo did hit five uh, while he was there, um, 12 doubles in uh, 30 games before he uh, broke his pinky on a slot, head first slide into second base because that's the, the hard-nosed player that he is. Um, but, I, it, I mean, it wasn't just home runs. I mean, it was line drives. I remember one specifically just off the top of my head was 112 miles an hour. And when most guys are hitting balls, you know, 90 miles an hour or something like that, I mean, it was really, uh, really just a sight to behold. Mike, he's played in 89 games. He has 325 at-bats. He's scored 57 runs. He has 91 hits. He has 21 doubles. He has two triples. He has 30 home runs, 68 RBIs. He's walked 37 times. He's struck out 92, um, which, you know, the strikeouts are going to be there, but that's actually better than I expected, weirdly enough. He is hitting the 280 with a 372 on base percentage and a slugging percentage of 634, which equates to a 1.006 OPS. You. I mean, you know, just, like, just from our history, we were excited when Lucas Duda would hit 30 home runs uh, in 2014. And it and just it's, – it's kind of hard to fathom that we have a player that has 30 home runs before the All-Star break. Uh, yeah, well put. Uh, this is rather uncommon. That's what makes it so special. You know, this doesn't happen all the time. Uh, don't forget, he led AAA last season in home runs and RBIs. He's been consistent throughout his professional career. Uh, I'll give him that. And uh, I'll make a joke and say he needs to get a light. I only say that because he's such a gym rat. He really does work hard, as Jacob says. Uh, and it, it shows. It shows he has a, a wonderful approach at the plate. And he's playing a very smart first base. Jacob stole the word right out of my mouth. Impressed. I'm so impressed. And I don't impress easily anymore. I'm more jaded than anything you think. And I'm impressed with this kid. I'm impressed, you know, uh, across the board. How could you not love what he's doing? Uh, how can you not get behind him, especially all-star time? Uh, it's about time he gets some national exposure and, and some uh, well-deserved claim, you know, so good for him. And I hope he does well. I'm sure he will. Uh, I just hope the old uh, home run derby curse doesn't afflict him in the second half. The kid was born December 7th, 1994 in Tampa, Florida. Rich, it's pretty impressive, uh, his maturity. You know, we've talked about it, you know, like like Mike just joked, he needs to get a life. Um, I know there's going to be a lot of players that are, are pretty uh, sound with power uh, going in this home run derby. I think Pete Alonso has as good of a chance as anybody. Oh, he does. No, he definitely does. And um, the thing about Pete Alonso, as I mentioned, you know, before in the podcast is when – you heard about him last year at Vegas and leading triple A home runs and all that. You figured, okay, the guy's going to open. He's going to hit some home runs. There's no question. Um, 30 at the all-star break, probably 
I don't think many people would have anticipated that, you know, maybe 18-ish, 20-ish. Um, but the thing about Alonzo is he came up with that reputation of being a poor defender. And I know Jacob's saying he never personally observed that, but that kind of was out there. Well, Alonzo, he makes a lot of very good plays on balls, you know, short hops. And at first he, um, he makes plays on, on balls hit at him that I have not seen any evidence that this guy is a butcher around the bag. So, yes, a tribute to his work ethic. He is a 280 hitter to go with those 30 home runs. He hits the ball to all fields. I mean, this guy, in my summary on him would be, I anticipated the power, but I also anticipated kind of an incomplete ball player whose power would be his calling card. I was wrong. And what he has turned out to be is a very complete baseball player who, as we've talked about before, off the field is also doing more than you could have possibly anticipated from this guy. He's the go-to guy after the game. He and Frazier seem to be the go-to guys after the game for comments. And at 24 and, and you know, with a grand total of three months in the big leagues, this guy stands there and takes the questions and, what is there not to be impressed about with this man? Uh, seriously, defense, offense, completeness, um, maturity. He's just a jewel to have. And, and the Mets, are, we're very lucky to have young, controllable talent. We hear that all the time, like McNeil and Alonzo, and to a lesser degree, Conforto. Uh, but we're very lucky to have him at, on the ball club because guys like that are what you build around. You know, I personally got a little sick of seeing the Braves having Acuna and Albies and those guys. You know, so I would always say, well, where are the Mets guys? Where are the young guys that the Mets are going to have as young, controllable talent? And they do have some. So it's very encouraging. And if I could just uh, get this in here, the crazy thing to me, um, when you look back at, at his, his, you know, game logs from, from the, the first half of the season, from May 1st to May 23rd, and that's 20 games, almost three weeks, uh, he hit 186, so he was he struggled for quite a bit of time there uh, in May, and that was coming off um, the the player of the uh, rookie of the month in April. Uh, remember that that whole um, you know quote unquote feud with Chris Paddock of the Padres. That was at the beginning of May, and he uh, he he um, struggled in that series until I think it was either the uh, third or fourth game. Um, but so yeah, he I mean he was struggling. He fought, you know for the first time, and then just the the fact that he's rebounded the way he has um, since then, um, I think is, is really the biggest uh, uh, you know, testament to, to the kind of player he is. And after that, after, since that stretch, he's hit 317 um, with a 421 on base percentage and 690 slugging percentage um, since that, that dreadful start to May. Um, and that that's the, the surprising thing to me is just how, how much of a complete hitter he's really shown to be. Yeah, that's a great point, Jacob. Uh, you know, he dropped I, – I don't know whether he ever got into the 240s, but I'm pretty sure he bottomed out at like 250 after hitting something uh, along the lines of 300 in April. And to see it bounce back uh, to, to 280 before the All-Star break, it, it's just uh, – it's fantastic. And, and you know, when you look at those numbers, it, it's just really something that, that – uh, it, it's it, it's hard to believe that, you know, we're, we're not only looking at him probably breaking, you know, knock on wood, everything stays healthy. Uh, he's going to break 
the Mets' all-time home run record. And he could very well be aiming uh, to break the judge home run record, rookie record, for Major League, uh, Major League Baseball. So it's, it's spectacular, and I think this is, this is a good segue to the All-Star game, and we have a couple other players to talk about. Um, let's start with McNeil. Jacob, what can you say about this guy? I mean, you cover the minor leagues, and he had been not getting a chance for, for years, but he was hitting pretty soundly uh, down that way. But you really, you know, obviously I don't think you can ever predict that he's going to be uh, compared to Joe DiMaggio with some of these numbers. Yeah, it's really, um, you know, it was really special to watch him last season um, in the in the 63 games that he played. Um, but just to see him uh, even exceed that uh, this year has been, uh, you know, a lot of fun to watch, especially as someone who um, I did follow, as you mentioned, um, coming up through the minors. And he's just always hit. Um, and, and just the, the only knock was just his inability to stay on the field. Um, in, uh, in 2016, he um, was ready to start his, Full year at Double A as a 24-year-old uh, and hit a hit a home run. I think it was might have been on his birthday if I remember correctly. Early in the season, um, yeah, his birthday is April 8th, so it has to have been early in the season. He hits a home run. He's was trotting around the bases and uh, you know tears a muscle in his uh, you know abdomen area, uh, needed surgery, and and only played those three games in 2016. And then 2017, he only played in, in 48 minor league games. Um, uh, so he's he's struck, you know, and then by that point he's kind of off the radar, um, and and is just kind of a guy who's you know just on the on the depth chart, the organizational depth chart, but not anywhere near the top of it. Um, and then what was unbelievable to to watch in 2018, he uh, he comes out um, hitting home runs. He uh, he hit 19 home runs uh, between. Uh, Binghamton in Las Vegas in 2018, and he had, uh, let me see, four, five, eight home runs in the minor leagues coming into that 2018 minor league season, and he hit 19. Um, so really, I mean, I, I don't know exactly kind of if, if it was a complete change in approach, um, but he showed power. Um, he, he was getting on base. He was, he was sprayed, you know, as you've seen, he sprays the ball all over the field. Um and then, uh, you know, five, it took them a while. It was, it was really frustrating. You know, all those uh, you know, June games where McNeil's breaking down in uh, over over across the country in Las Vegas, and you know, Jose Reyes kept getting uh, starts at, at short and, and second and, and third. Uh, and then, you know, they finally gave him a chance, and he just, you know, he kept hitting like he like he has his uh, his whole life. Rich, you know, he went four for five yesterday, and he was probably uh, uh, just – it was probably eating him up that one at bat that he didn't get a hit, especially I think he had runners in scoring position and probably kept him up at night. It's it's pretty awesome to see how pissed off he is when he doesn't get a hit. You know, he he expects to bat a thousand. <laughs> That's what it seems. And I I know that, you know, not many people out there – uh, uh, speaking of, you know, Pete Alonso getting national exposure, I'm really hoping that, that McNeil does something big in this All-Star game because I don't think that many people – it's the quietest anybody 
is hitting 350 in the 350s in the major leagues. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. You know, and I think when we talk about McNeil, we should point out the fact that he only has a 5.8, you know, walk percentage. I'm, I'm kidding. That is true. It's an actual statistic. But, I mean, if you want to find any flaw in the guy's game, and I'm, I'm totally being facetious, he's walking about six or nine times. So he's one of those hitters who, you know, he doesn't strike out much, he doesn't walk much, which shows you what a good hitter he is. You know, he he, he basically – he. He hits good pitches, you know, he slaps them the other way. If a pitcher makes a mistake, he has the ability to turn on it and drive it with power. Um, attitudinally, what more can you ask for? He will play anywhere on the field that he's asked to play. He will work hard to be the best he can be at that particular position. You know, already he's played second, third, left, and right. Um, so he'll do anything you ask him to do. Uh, he runs well. Um, you know, he and that attitude about, you know, he he will literally slam his helmet down if he's four for four and he makes an out, and, and when he goes four for five, like you said, Sam. You know, so in Jeff McNeil, I mean, the Mets really have something, and, and I really like what you just said because I think word is getting out on Alonzo. You know, as Sandy Alderson would say, chicks dig the long ball. And so, you know, power sells. And, um, you know, so people are starting to hear a little bit more about Alonzo, but McNeil probably, you know, he's flying under the radar. He's the he's the guy leading the National League in batting average that nobody outside of New York really knows much about. And and I think it will be great for him in particular. So I'm actually more excited for him in the All-Star game than I am for Alonzo, though I'm excited for both, because it'll give McNeil the stage he deserves, because people should see what this guy's all about. You, you know, this guy is leading the National League in, in batting average. And and I think it's really a good opportunity for him to show what he's made of. It seems like he's had to do that his whole career, and uh, and he's done quite a good job of it. So, so here's where, uh, you know, I kind of forgot exactly what the Joe DiMaggio connection was. But only Wade Boggs and Joe DiMaggio, Mike, have had more hits than Jeff Jeff McNeil's 170 in their first 500 at bat. Holy freaking God. Yeah, it's pretty freaking stupid if you ask me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm doing cartwheels. Uh, yesterday I tweeted, you know, I, I see <laughs> Jeff, Mc, Jeff McNeil and I think Ron Hunt, for those of you, who, you know, who, who can think back that far. But uh, pretty damn remarkable. Uh, so much for the sophomore jinx, huh? Last year he batted three. I, you know, I, I know people don't give as much. Uh, put as much weight behind batting average, but it, it still means something. Last year he batted 329, and for a, a non-power hitter, he had a, an 852 OPS. And he was a career 344 hitter in his minor league career. And, you know, Rich, to me, it's a complete mystery how, you know, he's just flown under the radar, and here he is leading the National League in hitting. Remarkable, just uh, just utterly remarkable. And we got one more All Star to talk about, which uh, I, I didn't completely expect this to happen. But but Rich, do you think this is a, a carryover with Jacob Degrom from how good he was last year? I, I mean, you know, not to say that. I mean, he's obviously he he's been he's added and the Mets need this uh, as, as much as we possibly uh, can imagine, 3.3 wins uh, in war this year. Um, he is 
and and obviously last year is a testament to how this really doesn't matter anymore. But he has uh, lost seven and won four. He has a 3.27 earned run average uh, in 110 innings, and his WHIP right now is 1.14. Um, I'm sorry, I, I read the uh, the wrong the wrong one. It's 1.09. Excuse me. I was weirdly enough reading off of his rookie year. Um, I'm not to say that he did, doesn't. Uh, he he didn't deserve to be an All Star, uh, but did it take you by surprise too? It did. No, it really did, because you know when it comes to All Star selections, I I felt that the fact that his record was not good would really hurt him, and um, and I'm glad that those who make those selections saw past that. You know, saw past the one-loss record to the more peripheral statistics, such as his whip and such as his strikeout-to-walk ratio and all those things that indicate that, you know, this guy really hasn't slipped at all from his Cy Young season. He really hasn't. And um, and so I'm glad for Jacob, and quite and I was. I was surprised. I thought Alonzo for sure. I thought McNeil probably, and I thought that would be it. And then when I heard about Jake, I'm like, ah, oh, okay, yeah, absolutely. He really should be there, and I'm glad that, you know, the the analytical processes of baseball have evolved to the point where they see that it, a guy really can be good and, and just be pitching in bad luck or, quite frankly, pitching for a bad team, which is what's afflicted Jacob. So, uh, no, I was very happy to see Jacob get the, uh, get the all-star nomination. He totally deserves it. And let's hope he gets in the game and repeats his performance from a few years ago. Uh, Jacob, talking about Jacob, um, you know, the reason why that 327 average is so high is, is probably just because of, you know, a, a few games here and there. It's similar to his 2017 year. Um, other than that, he lately, especially, he has just been superb. Yeah, I mean, when you when you compare this year to last year, I mean, he, the ground was so otherworldly, otherworldly good in 2018 that, you know, even if he's just um, a little bit worse than he was last year, he's still really good and one of the top um, pitchers in, in baseball. I did, you know, you want to get into the stats, um, stat I love, um, from baseball baseball perspective, um, which is called deserve run average, which is you know supposed to be read like ERA, um, and it, it, you know it includes a bunch of contextual factors, um, which includes something like defense, which has probably hurt him um, more than more than other pitchers um, in baseball. But anyway, uh, Degrom's deserve run average in 2018 was 2.09, and it's 2.28 this year. Uh, and when you adjust for the fact that, um, you know, obviously run scoring is up around baseball, um, it's uh, it's uh, both both this year and last year have been about 55% better than the league average. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, at this point, um, you know, six years into uh, into his career, I mean, you just you have to recognize how, how great of a pitcher he is um, and – even when it kind of seems like he might uh, not be as sharp as, as he was in a Cy Young season or as consistently good as he was, um, you know, he's still one of the uh, 
the top, you know, ten, even maybe five pitchers in, in all of baseball. Mike, you know, it's hard to it, – it, it, the expectations are obviously mighty high, but it's hard to duplicate one of the greatest pitching seasons of all time uh, a second time in a row. I mean, call it – obviously, it's not necessarily a sophomore jinx, but of this level, uh, of, you know, that Jacob deGrom has gotten to, you have to say that, that – you know, you're you're just not going to be able to maintain a 170 ERA for the rest of your career. No, you know that speaks to the great season that was. Uh, with regards to consistency and, and doing that year in year out, well, take a look at one of his competitors, Max Scherzer. Look at the season he's had, and uh, he's turning those in routinely. Uh, that's not to, uh, you know, speak badly of DeGrom, he's having a fine season, you know, and he's coming down from what was an almost five ERA at the end of April. Uh, he's down to 327. So he's been pitching well. Uh, we're not going to see that kind of greatness, you know, uh, on a regular. I'm a little concerned that he's only touched uh, the eighth inning once. Uh, and I'm curious to see how much the Mets will push him uh, over the second half of the season, considering, you know, or assuming that they continue playing this way and, and, and games become irrelevant. Uh, I'm just curious to see how they're going to handle the rest of the season and with Jacob DeGrom and how he's going to take it because uh, he's been pitching angrily this season. Uh, a lot of frustration I see in Jacob DeGrom this season. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, We've certainly been seeing more of the angry Jacob than than usual, uh, but it, you know, at some point it's gonna it's got to catch up to you. It's got to get to you that you just keep pitching in such bad luck that that your team continuously struggles to support you, um, and and it's it's not even so much the support this year. The Mets are putting the Mets early on are being put into positions to win, um, and unfortunately, the bullpen is just not keep you know holding it up. Um, you you mentioned uh, Jacob, you mentioned defense, and obviously, I think that is a big issue for this team right now uh, on top of the bullpen. Um, but the bullpen is, is glaringly, you know, the defense is not what is leading us to be out of the running as opposed to in the running. And I do believe that this tweet that I saw that um, got a lot of traction, but I, I don't think it's completely accurate because uh, I, I think they did the numbers slightly incorrect. But the Mets have blown MLB leading 22 saves, and this is from New York Mets News, who I believe we once had on Rising Apple. Um uh, if they had been perfect, they'd be 61-27, number one in MLB. If they'd saved 75%, they'd be fifth, about 55-33 second best in the NL. If they'd saved just 50%, they'd be 50-38, the NL wildcard leader. If they saved just 30%, they'd be 46-42, would be tied for NL wildcard. Now, I think what uh, somebody else point, uh, pointed out was the fact that sometimes a blown save happens in a game you end up winning. Sometimes... 
uh, uh, blown saves, uh, you, you know, don't always lead to losses. So, still, though, it was like, if they can correct any of this whatsoever, do you think the Mets could storm, uh, could take the league by storm in the second half? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, if everything clicks, you know, it's possible because the true talent level of this team is not, um, you know, as bad as they are right now. It's, it's probably significantly better than what they've shown. Um, I don't know if it's just the bullpen that, that will, would uh, lead this team to kind of do a complete 360, um, but it's certainly – not a not a poor place to start, and I mean, if they're looking at the trade market, I think um, you know if they are convinced that that they 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 are going to be buyers and, and not sellers, which you know at this point I think they they should probably think long and hard about um, selling selling off their expiring contracts. Um, but if they do truly deep in their hearts believe that that this team. Uh, can make a run. I think it, it wouldn't hurt to, um, you know, add, add some some outside help if you can, um, you know, pry a bullpen arm from a from a non-contending team. Um, but even then, I mean, it, it's got to be, um, you know, everything clicking on all. I mean, you know, Zach Wheeler can't have starts like he did today. Uh, Robinson Cano can't be, um, you know, as bad as as he's been, and Wilson Ramos really has to step up. Like we talked about him earlier. Um, but but of course the bullpen has been uh, been frustrating, um, and uh, you know coming coming out of the gates I think they're really going to have to show that they're um, they're uh, you know not not what not what they showed in the first half. Mike, um, you know uh, again like I I think that blown saves don't always happen in games that you lose, but for the majority of this of this time. Uh, the majority of these blown saves have led to losses. Sure. Do you agree? Do you agree with Jacob that it, it might help to pick up another bullpen arm from, from outside or should they just be selling everything off that they could possibly sell? Look, you have to be pragmatic. I don't know what their thinking is. Maybe they still think they're, uh, <laughs> in contention. I say that laughingly. Uh, but, you know, let us not forget we're 90 games down, seven, 72 games to go, and we're 10 games under 500. So uh, they better think this through very well. But I was just going to say that, you know, uh, you're right. Bullpen and the bone saves don't explain everything. They don't explain the whole story. That's only part of the equation. Uh, they're a defensively bad team. They're horrific up the middle, catcher, second, short, center field. Uh, and, you know, the offense is mid-level to bottom tier, and they're just not potent enough to overcome, uh, you know, a lot of these bullpen mistakes on a routine uh, on a routine basis. So there's something to be said for all components of the game, not just the bullpen, but, you know, uh, the bullpen iniquities are, are certainly glaring at this point. Adding an arm, I, I've been saying the only way to muster, you know, change things up is to add because they've gone just about through everyone within their system. We've seen them all except for two or three guys who haven't touched the major league mound yet. 
But, uh, you know, all these pitchers in excess of 22 or 23 at this point, they all have frequent far uh, points on their on their trips back and forth from Syracuse. So, you know, adding and going off campus perhaps is the only way to go. But is that a realistic plan of attack? I don't think so. I agree with Jacob in, in you know, dumping some of these expiring con- contracts uh, and, and taking this, taking it a step further, protecting what you believe is your core, and just jettisoning it, jettisoning the rest, or as much as you can. Uh, let's face it, his short-term plan is blowing up Brody's. That is, is blowing up in his face. But there's still a long-term plan in place, which, you know, uh, I feel more more agreeable to with uh, Elaine uh, Elaine Barrett, and, and and you know, I think in future years. In future drafts, will develop better, uh, but this year has been a complete disaster. So, you know, I'm not ready to hit the detonation button on everything just yet. But uh, I think they need to be a little bit more realistic about their approach come deadline time. So maybe it's kind of a double-edged sword, Rich, and kind of like the AJ Ramos moves. And I forget exactly. I'm going to look it up right now. Uh, who A.J. Ramos was included in. Uh, was that the Curtis Granderson trade? No, no, it couldn't have been the Curtis Granderson trade. Um, no, they, they sent... He, um, no, no, yeah. They, they sent some minor league to Miami for, for A.J. The, Ramos. The, the, the A.J. Ramos trade, that was, yeah, two minor leaguers. Morandi right, Gonzalez, yeah, I'm seeing that now. Who's bounced around to uh, the Cardinals and the Giants since the Marlins. And uh, Ricardo Cespedes, who uh, was released earlier in June by the Marlins. So I think we can close the book on that one. Yeah. Right. So one. maybe – maybe. go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Rich. I was say, that was one where – if you think about where the Mets were at this time in 2017, it really wasn't all that different. You know, they expected to be good, and they weren't. Um, in 2017, they had a lot of injuries. And, you know, the Syndergaard and, and Harvey issues and uh, you know, Cespedes on and off the IL. And so they were severely underachieving. And what Alderson did at that point was, sure, he became a seller. You know, he sold off Duda and he sold off a couple other pieces. Uh, he sold off um, Addison Reed. But at the same time, he tried to bring in some major league talent. So he's kind of like a buyer slash seller. Uh, and Ramos being the example of the major league talent he brought in. So I I think that might be what their strategy could be this time around, where it's not necessarily – and given we've talked about this a thousand times on the podcast, where they probably won't go into a full-scale rebuild, even if that is the right thing to do. They just don't want to do that and risk having a couple of years of, you know, empty city field stands. And unfortunately – they want to try to compete every year on a budget, all those things we've talked about. So maybe if you're convinced that you're not going to bring back a Zach Wheeler, maybe he has to go. But at the same time, why not try to get creative? Why not try to package a Wheeler, somebody else, and maybe bring back a young piece and maybe someone who has some major league experience? So maybe that's the strategy. What, what I don't want to see happen is I don't want to see another Jay Bruce for Ryder Ryan trade where you know you're taking you're not you're not paying any of the contract and you're getting a non prospect, right? We don't want that. So why not and I keep pointing to what Brian Cashman did 
in 2016, which was freaking ingenious. He had pieces that people wanted, and he brought back incredible talent. He brought back Andujar, and he brought back Labor Torres. And so maybe the pieces the Mets have aren't at the same quality as Aroldis Chapman. So maybe you're not going to get that. But there's also no reason, if you do have to sell off a couple of pieces, to simply bring back non-prospects, because that doesn't do any good for anybody. So my point is, maybe what they could do is get a bit creative. Maybe it's, it's, a, it's a rental player like a Wheeler, but maybe someone else in a deal where you can actually bring back something unique. I, and I want to, one more second here. I saw something proposed just today, I think it was, on, or maybe it was yesterday, where they were talking about potential landing spots for Wheeler. So one, this, I think it was Anthony Tacoma. And he had one spot being Houston, because Houston has a good rotation, but you could always use more starting pitching. Houston has a guy named Miles Straw who is on their major league roster but really doesn't play. He's a natural center fielder with great speed, great defense. He's one, like a Lenny Dykstra when Lenny came up kind of a guy. It's seemingly the way he profiles. He's 5'10", not a big guy, but a natural center fielder with athleticism. And Houston has an abundance of outfielders. This guy hardly ever plays. Probably somebody they'd be willing to pawn off. And if it takes Wheeler and maybe another piece, but here's what you get. Maybe what you're saying to yourself is, gee, center field is an absolute unmitigated disaster on this team. We could get somebody who we could plug right in, get a look at him for the rest of the season, and maybe the way you do that is it's Wheeler and another piece. So that's what I'd like to see them do is try to get creative. And if you're going to sell, sell creatively. Don't just take the dregs of another organization. And, Sam, this one's for you. You know, how much does 22 blown saves speak to a 17-31 and 31 road record? I don't know. That's a good point. No, that's, that's you, a great point, you, too. Um, you and, tell and, me. And, and Rich, let, let me ask, though, the, the, this outfitter you speak of, he doesn't dumpster dive for his uh, lost teeth like Wayne Dykstra does, does he? I don't believe he does at this point, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, but, no, I, I was going to go uh, that direction as well. Um, and, Mike, I'm, I'm going to loop back around to that, too, because it, it's certainly something that I've been uh, – and now it's just, you just make me want to look up the records. But, um, I, I, uh, Rich, you, you kind of went exactly the direction that I was, I was going to propose, was that you, you, you know, trade off people like Zach Wheeler, trade off people like Todd Frazier, but you also – try to get something back that can help you uh, for next year. And um, I think this is actually the good direction to go while I look up those, those home splits, home road splits uh, at the All-Star break. Um, Jacob, they put Steven Mass into the uh, bullpen this past week, but it looks like that was just to kind of keep his innings down, and they're, they're planning on putting him back into the rotation on the other side of things. But, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I don't think he had the, he he wasn't like perfect the entire time out there, but it wasn't like it was a devastating move. Uh, do you think they're considering maybe that, that this is the direction they need to go uh, on more of a long term basis, uh, or is is that just not something that Stephen Match would even be interested in? Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly uh, well, obviously they're they're not immediately going to to go to that that plan long-term, um, you know, obviously Callaway um, laid out their, their post all-star break rotation and Matt was, was in it. 
Um, so he, he's gonna gonna be back in the rotation at least um, for now. Um, but I, I I think in kind of feeling the tone in uh, in Callaway's voice when he first told the media that that they were gonna you know stick Mats in the bullpen for those those last few games before the break. Um, it it kind of felt like you know they're just um, you know kicking the tires and seeing what they could potentially have um, in Matt if he uh, if he was to, to be put out there in the bullpen because obviously um, he's had a a frustrating up and down season without a, a you know really any semblance of consistency. Um, so you know, you know and just because um, Matt is going to be around for for three more seasons if. Um, you, you feel at this point that he's just not getting it done in the in the rotation. That then you know why not try to get creative, especially if the team is not um, contending. And you you know you see it all the time around baseball, especially with kind of the the more cutting edge teams like the Astros and Rays, for example, um, who take uh, a middling starting pitcher and 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 put, and put him into the bullpen, and then you know good things happen. So. I think, uh, you know, I, and you you bring up a good point. It does really come down to whether um, that's something that Matt himself is, is open to. And, you know, obviously uh, we've seen that, that Steven is not um, one to keep his emotions, uh, you know, out of the public eye. Uh, so it, it's, uh, that's really not something that he's um, uh, fully on board with. And I, I'm not sure if, uh, He'll um, really be pitching up to his uh, full potential if he if he does go to the bullpen full time. Um, Mike, just real quick, just want to throw this out there: twenty three nineteen at home, seventeen thirty one on the road. They've lost about three or four games since I I believe I mentioned about how good they they had been in, at home. So they've been. Uh, their, their struggles have kind of carried over everywhere at this point. Um, and, you know, Jacob brings up a good point that in, in terms of, uh, you know, the league norms, and I'll go to you, Mike, on this one, um, that, you know, they, they sometimes, you know, there's, there's somebody who's struggling in the, in the uh, you know, uh, in the starting rotation. He's, he has no consistency. And they'll see if they can they can get something out of him out of the bullpen. Um, I mean, you know, other than moves, this may be some of the direction they need to go, especially if they keep saying that Anthony Kay will only start when he comes up. Uh, like I said earlier in the show, nothing ventured, nothing gained. You know, uh, Matt's is a big question mark, so maybe he can uh, reestablish himself in the pen. Who knows? Uh, he certainly hasn't distinguished, distinguished himself as a starter. Uh, he's one of three starting pitchers that we were relying on that, you know, maintain ERAs above four, four and a half, four and a half, somewhere around there. Uh, but you speak of struggle, and when I hear struggle, I think adversity. And how do you respond from adversity? So I'll just finish off by saying it's been two weeks from what I call Sunday Ponder Sunday, and the Mets have responded by going three and ten and one and six against the Phillies. So, you know, anything is in play at this point, Sam. 
you know, the starting rotation uh, is just kind of been other than Jacob DeGrom at this point. And I, I guess, you know, we haven't even talked about Vargas yet. Um, but he, yeah, I, I don't think he's even been as, as good as it, it, his numbers indicate, you know, considering that he sometimes can't even make it out of the, the sixth inning. Um, the starting rotation has underperformed, whether it's Zach Wheeler or Steven Matz or Noah Syndergaard. Uh, it has underperformed immensely. And uh, as much as I keep bringing up the bullpen, Rich, we have to, you know, point some blame that way. And it can't just be the ball, of course, because other people, other pitchers are adjusting. So what's going on? And if you want to take it pitcher by pitcher, go ahead. Well, you know, what's going on is it, it's – you're right. You're right to say that we can easily – point at the bullpen, and, and sure, the bullpen is, is dreadful. You know, the ERA just saw something come across. I think the ERA for the bullpen is 5.6-something in the first half, which is absolutely untenable, and we've talked about that. But then, if you, know, if you get to the starting pitching, you, know, you look at some of these, you, know, you look at some of the numbers, and it's just, it, it's really, you know, Wheeler, we're talking about, oh, you know, trade Wheeler because, um, because he has contract expiring and he has value. Well, how much value does he really have? Not only does he have an expiring contract, but after today, I believe his ERA is 4.69, very close to that somewhere in there. It might be a hundredth off, but 4.69. You look, you know, DeGrom, okay. You know, he hasn't been the same as last year, but how could he possibly be? How about, how about Noah? Noah and his 4.68 ERA. You know, that, how, how does a guy with that kind of stuff have a 4.68 ERA. Let that one sink in for a moment. 100 mile an hour fastball slider at you know when when he's right the slider's at 93 94 absolute wipeout pitch. How does that even happen? Like like I don't know. Is it the ball? Well, not every pitch. The ball's the same for everybody. So you look at Noah, Matt's. Oh, and can I say something about Matt's? So you guys are talking about him in the bullpen. He pitched last Saturday. Pitched two innings. Okay, so. He follows DeGrom in the rotation. He logically would have pitched this Saturday. So they, do you think there's something else going on here? Do you think maybe they're saying, well, you know, he wouldn't have – what I heard them say was he wouldn't have gotten a start before the All-Star break, so he wants to stay fresh, you know, get him a couple outings out of the bullpen. No, no, he would have gotten a start before the All-Star break. He pitched Saturday, and he pitched two innings in the rain game. So – is it? Are they just trying to get another arm in the bullpen, which is fine. I applaud that. I applaud trying something new. But did I miss something along the way here? Because there, th- this idea that he would not have gotten a start is nonsense. He, he was absolutely aligned to get a start. So anyway, there's that. Maybe you guys can comment on that. Give that one some thought. You know, Vargas, again, you know, Vargas is having a good year with a 377 ERA. So, you know, he is your second best pitcher. But when you think about it, and to answer your question, Sam, Wheeler up and down, even when he, you know, and, and his net work is about close to 4.7 ERA. Noah, very up and down, more down than up. ERA more than 4.5 at 4.68. Matt's, you know, Matt's ERA is pushing 5 at 4.89. He's had a couple of really good starts, and he's had a couple of dreadful ones. And, again, like Noah, he's in more down than up. So what is it? I mean, we all talk about, well, you know, it's not a starting pitching game anymore. The game has shifted. You know, it's more of a starting pitching is, under, is less valued these days. 
Okay. Is it? But why though? I and mean, why can the? Why did these guys go from being such a strong rotation, especially in the second half last year, to this? I'm asking you guys. Is it the ball? I'm not buying that one. I'm not. So what is it? Is it? It wasn't Dave Island because you know he was dismissed, and they've gotten worse under Regan. I have no idea. I, I can't explain it other than when I look at these numbers and I say this team's philosophy was to build around the starting rotation, and this is what you're getting, wow. I mean, <laughs> wow. That's all I could say because I have no answers. Uh, Jacob, you uh, certainly want to run with that, but it sounds like Rich's uh, bullshit radar is going off when it comes to, to uh, this whole match. Yeah, I uh... – I'm not really sure, and I, I do think you know maybe to some extent that that the ball is uh, you know impacting pitchers who um, rely on a breaking ball as their as their secondary pitch. I mean you know Edwin Diaz, his slider was his um, you know devastating out pitch last year in Seattle. Syndergaard has had the hook from hell um, for years, and then all of a sudden they just they're just flat. Um, and, you know, I haven't really looked into whether, um, you know, that, that's affecting Matt too much. Um, but uh, who knows? And, and it's, um, I'm sure, frustrating for, for the team. But, um, you know, I, there, there might be something that, that hasn't been, that hasn't been uh, you know, made public that, that's affecting him. Um, but I think, uh, you know, at, at this point of the season where the, uh, you know, where and where the team is headed, I think, you know, it would um, really benefit all parties to, you know, get creative as possible and just try something to get, get them into a groove. And if that's in the bullpen, then so be it. Mike, what say you? Is it a ball issue or is it a pitcher issue? Interesting. Triple-A baseball and MLB use the same baseballs. And in both circuits, uh, both enterprises' home runs are up. Uh, and they're up by a large margin. Uh, and they say, you know, the scuttlebutt is this new baseball that virtually affects sliders. I don't know. What the hell do I know about that? But I will say this. Think back to Bartolo Colon and the success that he had working off this fastball. And that's what I believe. I believe in fastball curveball. Uh, I also believe in elevating fastballs. Seaver and Kopex make careers of it. Uh, so I speak of craftsmanship, and that's something I believe that Syndergaard lacks. Uh, Wheeler, you know, he's been he's been a victim of the long ball. Too many games, he's surrendered at least two home runs. So you know, he pitches well, and then he has that one mistake. Uh, that just, you know, undoes his whole effort. But I'll circle that back to the offense and not being potent enough to overcome, uh, you know, these mistakes. So, like I said, the equation uh, involves many variables, not just one thing. But uh, I have a preference of working off of fastballs. I don't believe much as pitchers do that. and, uh, you know, again, a matter of craftsmanship, something I believe some of these pitches lack. 
I can't argue with you there, man. And we've been saying that Noah would eventually come around as a pitcher uh, just from, from a, a, a craftsmanship uh, standpoint, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And, um, you know, uh, you don't want to give up on him, obviously, but, but you know, we we need to see more of those one nothing games. I just want to say not in terms of the score, but go ahead, Mike. Sam, I'm sorry to answer. I'll also add that, you know, situational baseball, and now that we're talking pitching, situational pitching doesn't exist anymore. You don't plan ahead. You know, you don't try to induce a double play anymore. Uh, and and you don't, you know, think two batters ahead. I think all that is out the window, and that's a large part of craftsmanship. So, you know, it's it's a little bit of old school versus new school. And, you know, sometimes when hot and cold fronts meet, you know, they create storms and rain comes down. Same effect. That's a great point. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about this uh, uh, specific Phillies series and kind of the rivalry over this this entire year with these hit batsmen. And I'm going to start with you, Rich, on this one. my my Philly friend uh, that we've actually talked about the Phillies with back uh, on the old podcast, um, he, he, you know, he he's just he, basically the perception of the Mets is that Mickey went headhunting. You know, going back to the Jacob Romney, uh, uh, Reese Hoskins moment. Uh, you know, uh, here here's what I I want to ask you, Rich, about the entire thing. The Mets batters. Keep getting hit batsman after hit batsman after hit batsman. And, you know, the the Mets haven't so much – I guess they haven't retaliated much except the way they've retaliated has really uh, uh, shaken the feathers of the opposition. So what's your take on this? Do you you think Mickey is going headhunting? And if he is, do you think it speaks to some of the amateurism we're talking about? No, I don't think they're going head on thing at all. I, I think when you look at it, you know, let's wind the clock back to April. You had that situation in the blowout game where it all started when the Mets were blowing the Phillies out on the Wednesday night game, and what happened was the Phillies started stealing bases. Okay, you know, if you want to steal bases when you're behind by 12 runs, go ahead. Or I'm not sure what maybe it was like 10 runs. Go ahead, fine. Well, then the Mets for some strange started stealing bases, and that's wrong. You don't do that. We all know that. If you're blowing the other team out, you don't steal bases on them. The Mets did, and the Phillies threw at the Mets, which is kind of the way it's been since I can remember. You know, if you're rubbing it in somebody's face like that, taking the extra base, things like that, when you're blowing somebody out, you're, somebody's going to get thrown at, and that's what happened. And then Rain threw at Reese Hoskins to, to try to settle the score, and and I think when a rookie does it, they're always trying to earn credibility with the team when they do it. He threw at the guy's head. You don't do that, okay? You don't, Jacob, you don't do that. If you want to retaliate and make your, make your bones with the team, throw at his ass. Throw behind him. Don't throw at his freaking head. And then he did it again. So the Mets, in my opinion, are the, the way this thing started, the Mets are wrong. 100% in my opinion. And so then it goes on and on. And, and, you know, guys get hit when they were in Philly last week. Who knows if that's intentional or not? Who really knows? If the first one, you know, somebody gets hit for the first time, you don't know if that's intentional or not. The retaliation usually is. 
So, you know, obvious. I don't think Arietta was throwing at Frazier last night. I really don't. He threw a changeup. He didn't win a changeup. Now, I understand that Frazier's pissed off about it. I would be, too, if I got hit by an 89-mile-an-hour changeup. But it's still a changeup, and if Arietta wanted to hit him and hurt him, he would have thrown a fastball at him. Okay. So then he certainly wasn't throwing at Rosario. But because it's like what you have to do. They have to go nuts on the field. and You can have a situation where if you're, everybody's right, everybody's wrong. Last night, I think everybody was right. The Mets were right that Arietta should have been thrown out after the warning. But also the Phillies are saying, probably saying to themselves, look, why in the hell would we be throwing at you now and, and, and in a close game and putting people on base? That's not what we're doing. So I understand the Phillies' point. I understand the umpires for not throwing Arietta out because it did not make game sense that he would be throwing at Rosario. And why would he hit him in the leg anyway in that situation to load the bases? So Font today, of course he was throwing at, at Hoskins. Of course he was. It was retaliation. And it was the next day, you know, and it was – it's like that whole thing. It's like, you know, if somebody starts a fight in school, they always suspend the kid who threw the second punch, you know, not because nobody saw the first one. But so I guess it, it's, a, it's kind of a – my summary answer on that one would be, you know, it's one of those things where it's happened for as long as baseball's been a game, and usually you have to figure out on the first one, was it intentional or not, because usually the second one is. So I don't know. I just hope it's over, because I don't want to see anybody get hurt. I don't want to see McNeil get hurt. I don't want them to throw it Alonzo. I hope this put a, put an end to it. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's kind of been kind of nonsensical with these two teams. It, it's bad blood, but it's also, I don't know. I'd rather see the bad blood between Jimmy Rollins and Jose Reyes, who was the better player, competition, that kind of a thing. This has kind of become nonsense in my opinion. It's kind of just tiresome at this point. Uh, Jacob, I, I have to say, though, that, you know, in context of Brody throwing a chair, uh, Mickey's got to respond like that even if, you know, you um, even if it's clear that he wasn't trying to uh, load the bases at that point. Uh, but, you know, considering that the heat is on Mickey, I, I think that you have to respond the way he did look by, by getting thrown out himself last night. Or, yeah, last night. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone in that clubhouse, you know, the manager, the coaches, the players, and especially the manager, Everyone's frustrated, and, and um, you know, things um, like the, the throne chair, the now famous throne chair, um, is what happens. And I feel like this is perfectly tying up, you know, how we started this conversation. And um, now that we're here, I mean, you know, the things um, bubble to that point and, uh, and, and blow up like that happen, and, and you, uh, you, uh, you're going to see – um, a display of emotion on the field um, from from the the players and, and the manager and it's I mean to be honest it's nice to see that Mickey Callaway has a pulse I mean you know it, it's uh, kind of um, coming from from the Terry Collins years where um, he would you know get thrown out of you know, multiple times in a season um, it's nice to see that 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 Callaway is actually um, you know getting getting heated and and, and uh, into the game sometimes uh, because most of the time, I mean, especially you know when you listen to him, uh, listen to him talk about about how his his, his team is doing and um, see him on the field, he's you know a very uh, stoic guy for the most part. So um, you know, I, I, 
like I said, everyone's frustrated at this point. Um, and, uh, and, and those things, you know, kind of happen, um, when the situation uh, calls for it. Yeah. Uh, Mike, Jake Arrieta after the game, um, responded to Todd Frazier by saying, you know, if he wants to talk to me, uh, uh, you know, he has to do it face-to-face. I'll put a dent in his skull. Seems a bit much, don't you think? <laughs> At least you say out loud. Seems a bit much, you know, but <laughs> I honestly don't know what to say about it. Seems a bit much, but if he wants to take it, they see I'm, I'm a firm believer in ramifications, you know. America is the land of the free. You're free to do whatever the free you want. But there's ramifications and consequences. Will he face any? Doubtful. So what's the sense? Uh, you know, I think Mickey did A-OK. He had to do what he did. I hate when umpires become the game. That said, I'm going to throw you a little change-up. And, you know, umpires, they're all different. And just like ballparks, being different, uh, that's part of the charm of the game. And it makes baseball unlike the other sports. Yeah, even Angel Fernandez. I don't want to see him unemployed. I'd rather see him blow a call and everyone, you know, jump on him. Part of the charm of the game. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, so that's another way of saying that umpires don't all adhere to a certain standard. There used to be a time when players and teams they used to do uh, pre-game prep by knowing who was calling what game, who was the crew, and, and they worked around that, you know, and pitches worked accordingly, uh, uh, you know, as far as who was calling balls and strikes that day. Uh, I'll wrap this up by saying, look, I'm a little old school. I'm cool with beanball wars. Don't go for the head. Do it the right way. Do it like men. I'd rather have the players police that amongst themselves than, you know, the league over-legislating things. Uh, I'm, a, I'm against over-legislation. I don't open up Pandora's box. I leave that up to other people, and then I shiver in my, in, in, in my underwear. I really do. I'm not that guy. So I'd rather have players police that amongst themselves. At some point, players call it quits, and they say, all right, you know what, let's cut this crap out. Let's just move on. You know, but then again... Is that what in part sparks rivalries? So let's be careful what we ask for, and, and let's see what kind of PC we're going to impose on our national pastime. Let, let, let's get a grip on ourselves. Speaking of umpires, Rich, you and I were talking about, about it the other day, that the umpires seem to have gotten extremely lackadaisical with putting themselves into a position to make the right call ever since replay got introduced. They're depending entirely too much on Chelsea, I would think. And the other night, Mickey uh, didn't have a challenge left because he challenged a little too early. Um, And the umpires, it was too early to uh, induce an umpire uh, review. Um, And the Mets, who, you know, he was, I wouldn't say he was clearly out, but the umpire could have put himself into a better position to see that the foot was down, uh, so, sorry, Wilson Ramos's foot was down, speaking of defense, and he blocked the plate the way you classically do. And 
he got the tag down on him. Because at first I thought to myself, why, you know, why are you going home on that play? Go get the, the guaranteed out. But it turns out that Todd Frazier was right to throw home. It just didn't matter. And just run with wherever you want to, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm, the, all these umpires, you know, uh, like, like Mike just said, like there isn't one umpire that's the same. But even before there are robo-umps, if there are ever to be robo-umps, these umpires are becoming substantially more robotic-like with the way they are, are not doing their jobs. Well, you know, replay in baseball, if you have to look at it, I believe it was a 2009 season where they were replaying only home runs. And then it moved into, you know, the whole thing with the manager's challenges, you know, around the, around the 2010, 2011 seasons. And if you, if you look at it on net, you know, what has the impact of replay been on Major League Baseball? I have to say it's been negative for, for many reasons. Number one, Sam, to your point, I think now we're seeing just how bad the umpiring is because you have these long delays where they're looking at every angle and you're seeing, you know, that, man, these guys miss calls. Like, it's, it's it, because when you didn't have replay, sure, they, they, they'd show you a replay on TV, but then the game would just keep going. Here, you have these two- to six-minute stops, and you're like, damn, I can't believe how many the percentages are getting wrong. And then if you think about the way replay is done in baseball, it's a disaster. It's nothing short of a disaster. You have these long stoppages. And, and it, it's horrible for the game. It's just horrible. Like I've said on this podcast many times, because in baseball there are so many calls going on all the time, there are calls on, whether it's balls and strikes, which aren't reviewable, but there are so many different things. Do it like hockey does, where people are watching this stuff in the bunker, and the minute they want help, they get it right there. This person's already watched it, already has, an, has the ruling on it, do it that way. This idea where they make that stupid gesture, like put the headset on, then they stop the game, and everybody chills out for six minutes. And if you got that one right, you get another one where you can stop the game for six more minutes. You know, even the NFL has gotten better. The NFL has shortened those replays. And it's just, you know, so I think on net, and I'd like your, your opinions on this, on net, sure, they've gotten some, some calls right that might not have gone right, and, and yes, of course. But if you think about the big picture here and the exposure of the umpires, the angering of the fans, and mostly the way this instant replay is implemented in the game, I think on net it's been a huge negative. That's my opinion. Let's go around the horn with that uh, before we we move on. Um, I do want to talk a little bit of minors with you, Jacob, before we go. Uh, but, But, yeah, go around the horn, starting with you, Jacob. What do you think? Yeah, it's uh it's tough because I I uh I'm a big fan of getting it right and I think everything should be gotten correct. Um but at the same time, um I do hate how long it takes. Um and I do think it it kind of messes with the flow um of the game and uh you know, I didn't think there was uh, anything explicitly wrong with uh, how the game was before, um, you know, the replay was instituted on such a, a grand scale. Um, so I, 
um, you know, I, I, I like, um, I do like what replay has, has brought to the game. Um, but I don't think it's, uh, it, it was really, um, necessary when you look like you guys have said, when, when you look at kind of, um, the totality of how it, um, really had the impact of the game, um, thus far. Mike, before I go to you, I just want to say that something that really pissed me off about Friday night is just this idea of pigeonholing the rules, you know? Like, like it, if you're uh, – obviously, the way they go about it slows the game down, but if you want to get all the calls right, get all the calls right. Don't have all these ridiculous rules about when you can challenge, how many challenges you have, this, that, and the other. Like, just get the call right. And that's why that fits umpire, uh, you know, that you can obviously afford to be up in a booth somewhere in the every major league stadium. It's only, what, 15 extra people you have to pay. Like, it, it, it just seems like it would be substantially more streamlined than this bullshit that they're doing right now. Uh, because, you know, the, the umps can't challenge. The, the uh, uh, Mickey can't challenge. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, what is your opinion, Mike? <laughs> You're absolutely right. You bring up point number two on my list of three. Applying a competitive component to replay is completely stupid. Stupid. I think that's the most appropriate word to use. Stupid. With the capital S. That said, I want nothing to do with an electronic strike zone. Here, are, Here's what I want. I want that fifth eye up in the sky at every park monitoring everything and I want him mic'd up to the crew chief you need umpires on the field for the sake of continuity of play runners, pace runners, batters fielders, everyone needs to know what they're doing at any given second and umpires are there to facilitate that for continuity of play but by the time everything winds down and, and the dust settles the guy in the sky has already called down to the crew chief and told him what went on, put this guy there, and this is what happened, and this is how we correct it, correct it. let's move on. All of that should take no more, no more than 10 seconds or the time it takes a base runner to move from third back to second. That's how long it should take. I, I think uh... – Hopefully Rob Manfred's listening. Most likely he's not, but maybe they'll get this right one day. Maybe this, they they will. It, it would be uh, really really uh, excellent. And um, yeah, before we wrap this up, I wanted to talk a little minors with you, Jacob. Uh, so a lot of people have been criticizing Brody for some of the trades that included all those prospects. Uh, you know, this, this this is totally bookending. You know, from where we started uh, with this. Um, I, I, I guess I'll start with the drafts uh, before asking you about some of the affiliates. How did the Mets do? And it seems like they've been getting some, some A-plus grades from a lot of people. How do you think the Mets did uh, recouping some of their losses in this past draft? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an absolute A. I mean, if you're assigning grades to, to how they did, um, you know, usually uh, you're, you're – feel like you're guaranteed to get a very solid player if not a great potential player uh in the first round um and then after that you're you know you're filling out the rest of your system 
and hoping that you 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 got guys that um, have tools to to be major leaguers one day. And then in but in their first three rounds, they picked up three um, guys who are at that very good level. Um, so I you know none of them are uh, really going to fully soften the uh, the, the blow and, and the uh, the pain of losing. Um, a Jared Kelnick or a Justin Dunn um, in the trade to uh, Seattle. Uh, but uh, between Brett Beatty, the, the third baseman, and Josh Wolf and Matthew Allen, the pitchers that they took in the second and third rounds, um, you know, they, they really picked up, um, you know, more <laughs> – more talent than than you're usually expecting from uh, from those three rounds as a whole, and then after that, I mean, they had to uh, uh, draft a, a bunch of senior college seniors um, because the the way that the the draft bonus pool rules are structured, um, which you know I, I don't necessarily agree with. Um, uh, they really only ha- had no other choice than to take the college seniors who who command, you know, minuscule signing bonuses compared to what it was going, going to take um, to sign Matthew Allen in that third round because he was um, a top, uh, you know, 15, 20 talent when you look at the whole draft. Um, so outside of the top three, there really isn't much to write home about, um, but that top three could go down as one of the best in, uh, in Mets history. That sounds Great. Hopefully they don't do what they always do and mess it all up. Um, so how have the affiliates been doing? Let, let's start uh, going all the way to the bottom. These new short season, uh, uh, te- you know, the, the, the teams that are only less than a, a, a month into their season. Um, how, how has everybody been performing? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the short season league has been, uh, you know, barely three weeks. Um, that Brooklyn's been playing uh, even even less for Kingsport and the Gulf Coast League. Um, like I said, you know, the, the rest of the, the draft after those top three were a bunch of um, you know older college players that um, really don't project to uh, to have major league futures. So that's really what the the, um, the Brooklyn team has been filled out with. I mean, there are a few guys who who have played well. Um, and obviously I'm sure you guys have heard of Jake Mangum um, from Mississippi State. He was the fourth-round pick, um, and he's uh, obviously gotten a lot of press because he was uh, the all-time uh, SEC hit leader. Uh, so they do have him. He's kind of gotten off to a slow start. Um, but uh, the real the real uh, exciting team is down in the Gulf Coast League uh, because that's where Brett Beatty started. That's where um, Josh Wolf and, and Matthew Allen will start. They haven't pitched yet. Um, because the Mets like to ease their their recently drafted pitchers into game action, and understandably so. Um, and Brett Beatty was so good that he's already up in Kingsport. Um, you know, and he's obviously a little more advanced than your typical high school pick um, because he is uh, he's approaching 20 years of age, which is unusual um, for someone out of high school. But he uh, he was seven for 20 in five games, and they said uh, bump him up. Um, so he's up in Kingsport. They also have a catcher. Uh, Francisco Alvarez, um, who has uh, also been promoted to Kingsport from the uh, from the Gulf Coast League, and this is his first professional season. He's 17. He's from Venezuela. He stands at 5'11", 220 pounds. He's a thick kid, 
um, and last July 2nd, they gave him a uh, franchise record $2.1 million bonus. Um, and he was 12 for 26 over a week, a week's worth of Gulf Coast League games. And they, uh, they bumped him up to Kingsport. So um, he's really someone to get excited about. But uh, um, as far as uh, the rest of the, uh, the affiliates, uh, the short season affiliates go, um, that's kind of what we're looking at right now. So which level is performing the best right now, would you say? Um, last I looked at the standings, I believe it was St. Lucie. Yeah. Um, I mean, everyone's kind of hovering around 500 under 500 in terms of, uh, in terms of record. Um, because I, you know, for being honest, there just isn't a ton of talent in the, uh, the top four levels of, uh, of the Met system right now. The, you know, the guys to be excited about are, are, um, you know, teenagers and years away from the major leagues. I mean, you know, you look at a team like Syracuse, I mean, they're trotting a lot, trotting out a lineup of major league veterans every night. Um, you know, they still have uh, Rajay Davis down there, Danny Espinoza, Dilson Herrera, Ruben Tejada, who somehow is back in the Mets organization and is somehow still only 29. Um, and Tejada's actually been hitting pretty well. Um, and then, you know, Binghamton is just a game over 500. Um, you know, they, they, they no longer have Anthony Kay. He's up in Syracuse. Um, St. Lucie is 45 and 41. And then, uh, Columbia, um, they've really scuffled. And it's a shame because they have, um, probably of those top four affiliates, they have, um, the most talent, um, but they've really struggled. They're 33 and 51. Um, and, you know, I've heard some rumblings about maybe some, uh, instability with the, uh, the coaching staff over there. Um, but they have, uh, they have the other teenagers that are that are really impressive. Ronnie Mauricio, who, in my opinion, has usurped uh, Andres Jimenez as the uh, top prospect in the organization. Uh, Mark Vientos, who is the second-round pick two years ago, and Simeon Woods Richardson, the pitcher, who was the second-round pick last year. Um, they're all in, in Columbia. Um, they've all had their fair share of struggles, um, and, and that team is, uh, as a whole has been struggling. So, I mean, it's really been the theme the last few years, you know, in terms of record. I don't, I don't think a, a Mets minor league team has really succeeded um, in the win column. I mean, going back to 20, I believe it was either 2013 or 2014 when Binghamton won the AA or the Eastern League Championship. Um, so it's, uh, you know, kind of up and down everywhere, um, but not a lot in terms of the uh, the wins. And lastly, obviously this was kind of included in your answer just now, but how would you describe uh, Syracuse's first season? Do, would, would, would you say this has been a success so far, one way or the other, you know, record notwithstanding? Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because um, I was actually talking about it with someone today, um, how everyone was very – um, excited at the thought that the Mets were leaving the uh, Pacific Coast League with uh, Las Vegas um, and uh, and leaving the the uh, the environment out there that led to um, you know double digit runs almost every game, um, so that they, they could finally analyze their pitchers on a, on a level playing field. And it just so happens, of course, by the Mets' luck, that uh, AAA is now using 
the same tightly wound baseballs that they're using in the major leagues. Um, so some of their pitchers have had uh, a tough go of it as well. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, to fully gauge um, how everything's been going in, in that respect. Um, it is interesting. The fact that the whole team is basically major league veterans um, and, you know, some of the guys have, uh, you know, made the jump to, to the major leagues. You've seen guys like Adani Hechevarria, Carlos Gomez, Rajay Davis, you know, got all guys who have um, spent varying amounts of, uh, of time in the major leagues with the Mets and had varying degrees of success. Um, but then, you know, you look at guys like uh, Corey Oswalt and Chris Flexen, they've, they've had success um, in, uh, in Syracuse. So, um, you know, they, you got a couple guys that have kind of been up and down that you um, you hope if if the Mets are out of it as it seems they are that they you know give these guys um, you know a fair a fair chance at um, you know getting in the rotation and getting starts or in Flexen's case um, in the bullpen. You know, I was really kind of frustrated. Flexen actually you know save for uh, a go ahead home run against the Cardinals, he gave up out of the bullpen. He pitched pretty well. Um, and then, of course, uh, he was optioned um, back to Syracuse. So, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of, uh, you know, is what it is. Um, not uh, No one, you know, to super uh, that you're getting super excited about, um, like you might be with other, other organizations. But, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see if these guys can uh, come up here and uh, give them the chance, um, you know, actually perform at the major league level. So I'm going to go around the horn and see if anybody has a minor league question. But, uh, Rich, I'm going to start with you. I know what you really want to do is voice how excited you are for Ruben Zahada to rejoin the team. Yeah, I, I can't wait for that to happen. Um, <laughs> said sarcastically. So, you know, Jacob, if you could just make say a word or two about a couple of the guys that we know about, we being, you know, people who aren't as attuned to the minor leagues as you are. You, you touched on them briefly, but – um, but your thoughts on, on Ronnie Mauricio, uh, Andres Jimenez, um, what I read is that, like you said earlier, they've had their struggles a little bit here and there. Um, but what these are the names that we've heard about. These are the names that people say, well, you know, if you could trade a Rosario, you've got a Jimenez. And, um, you know, of course, you might be a year or two away, but, but better days are coming. Can you level set us on those two guys? Yeah, um well Jimenez um he's he's had his struggles uh so far in, in Binghamton. He's um hitting, you know, under under two fifty. The power really hasn't shown up like I thought it might um this year, but he's uh he's still excellent in the field. Uh, I I think, you know, it, it's possible he ends up long term at uh at uh, at second base. Um, but for now, he's more than capable at shortstop. And, you know, you got to remember with this guy, he's 20 years old in double A, and there just aren't many guys um, that are uh, are doing that and, you know, having any type of success, whether it be a good or bad. Um, so Jimenez is kind of there, and I think he'll he'll stay there the, the for the remainder of the season. You won't see triple A this year. Um, and then you've got Mauricio down in, uh, in, um, in, uh, in Colombia. And and Mauricio, I, I I got to see him in uh, in extended spring uh, or minor league spring training in Fort St. Lucie, and I mean this kid has you know tools to to dream on, and he's only 18, 
and uh, you know numbers haven't always been there this year, but I mean that's completely to be expected from an 18-year-old playing full-season ball when most of these guys are you know uh, over a year out of college that the pitchers that he's facing, and uh, I mean he's he's listed at 6'3", 166 pounds, so you you can imagine he has um, you know a frame to grow into. And he's uh, you know, already showcased some uh, some power from both sides of the plate. Um, he hit a home run from the right side of the plate the other night that was really impressive to me. Um, so when you're looking at these shortstops, obviously Mauricio is the guy that's further away, and then as it's closer, um, I uh, I don't see you know Jimenez making it to the majors until maybe um, you know the, the the second half of 2020. Um, so I do think that, you know it's going to be Rosario. Uh, for the foreseeable future, um, getting getting you know the full time job at shortstop like he has, um, and obviously Mauricio's further away. But if there was anyone you know in the Mets system to make a Acuna, Juan Soto type jump to the major leagues, you know where he starts a season in high A and by mid season he's he's in the majors. Um, it is Mauricio, um, but obviously I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't bet on that happening, but um, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Great, thanks. Mike? Cyclones just got swept by Aramidine, so I'm not happy about that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I do have some questions. Uh, I have a question. What, what, what are your impressions of Anthony Kay's experience in International League? Uh Obviously, you know, he's tailing off compared to his double-A numbers. That's A. I always used to have a thing about David Thompson, third baseman. This year he seems to have fallen off a cliff. Wonder if you might have any insight to that one. And part three of this question, down at double-A in Binghamton, you know, there's three names that we haven't brought up yet who haven't participated in this merry-go-round in Flushing. Uh Joe, Z- Joe Zangi, Adonis Husella, and, and Stephen Villanus. Uh, any observations or uh, thoughts of them potentially helping out this bullpen? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll start with Kay because um, you mentioned him first and because he threw a scoreless inning in the Futures game tonight. Um, Kay is, uh, you know, obviously he, he uh, missed a year and a half after he was drafted. Um and he tore absolutely tore through Double A, uh, made 12 starts there. And then since uh, since he's been in Triple A, he struggled. And I do think uh, you know, like I mentioned before, that uh, might have to do with uh, getting adjusted to the ball. Um, and uh, you know, he relies on his uh, his curveball as a uh, secondary pitch. Um, so perhaps that's uh, you know been a uh, been a change that he's had to uh, confront. Um, he's not getting a ton of uh, swings and misses down uh, as much as he was um, in uh, in Binghamton. Um, so you know, I, I think you know maybe he was. He, uh, if you look at it, he did himself a disservice by pitching so well in Double A because um, I think Mets fans really saw that and were like, "Oh my God, we have a, a, you know one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. He's going to come up. He's going to slot right into the rotation in the major leagues and succeed right away." And, uh, you know, I don't really think the outlook on him has changed um, from the beginning of the season, which was, um, you know, a back end of the rotation starter um, or a potential um, late inning reliever um, from the left side. 
And, uh, you know, his fastball velocity has been consistently 91, 92, 93. And then in, when he came into the Futures game uh, this evening, he was up to 96. So perhaps um, that's what his future role in the majors is. Um, you know, he still kind of only has two pitches down and is, is working on a third. Um, so I don't really see him as a guy that's uh, going to make a serious impact on the major league team anytime soon. But, uh, you know, I'm certainly kind of watching um, his progression in AAA. That'll be interesting to see. Um, move on to David Thompson real quick. Uh, yeah, I mean, Thompson, when he came into Brooklyn, I'm sure you saw him firsthand. He was a fourth-round pick. Um, out of Miami, so everyone was uh, very excited to see him there. I think he was the top prospect on that 2015 Cyclones team, um, and he's he's had injury problems of his own. Um, so he's uh, he's kind of uh, fallen a bit from where he was, and is kind of now maybe just teetering on that top 30 in, in the organization. Um, he started the season in Syracuse, and he was. Uh, playing first base for the first time in his, in his uh, professional career. Um, so, obviously, the team likes the bat. They just kind of want to find a place for him. Um, but because, obviously, Syracuse has had such a big roster crunch, um, he has been in, uh, in Binghamton um, for a bit over a month now. Um, and he's hitting well just around 300 there. Um, and I kind of worry that maybe that's his ceiling, is the guy that hits really well in double A, but just, um, isn't kind of a bat that's going to play at the higher levels. Um, so we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, he's uh, obviously, you know, one of the more well-known names around uh, Mets fans in terms of guys that have been around for a while. And then you mentioned the double-A relievers, um, which is kind of interesting. I'll start with uh, Adonis Uceta, um because he, uh, he was on the radar a couple of years ago um, had, I want to say, uh, shoulder surgery last season. Um, and he's, he's pitching really well in Binghamton. The only thing is, is that he is a minor league free agent after this season, and the Mets are not known to bring back their minor league free agents. Um, so I wouldn't really bet on seeing him um, in the big league bullpen. Zangi is another guy who uh, has pretty good velocity. Um, consistently around, you know, 95. Um, he's just struggled with his command. His fastball command has kind of been a little erratic at times. He struggled when he went up to Syracuse. Um, and then Valines uh, is, is, um, was uh, kind of making the rounds uh, around uh, Mets Twitter um, because he was absolutely lights out in Binghamton. And he was uh, great when I saw him in Brooklyn in 2017. He's so interesting because he throws uh, from a sidearm uh, arm slot, um, but he, does, he doesn't throw any harder than 88 miles an hour. Um, so he's had a lot of success carving through the minor league levels. Um, and Binghamton, he has an 0.44 ERA in 15 appearances, but he went up to Syracuse, got absolutely shelled. Um, so he's another guy that is kind of – trying to break that barrier um, and trying to, uh, you know, carry over the, the lower minor success into the, uh, into the upper minors. Um, but, you know, Valines, if he keeps it up in Binghamton, he's a guy that I could see um, later in the year coming up into the, uh, into the majors. Um, but uh, we'll just kind of have to see how he, uh, 
he plays in Triple A if he uh, is able to get back there. Thank you so much, Jacob. And uh, you know, Mike and Rich, you guys have been uh, better at this than I have in terms of pressing the reset button with the show. But I just wanted to say, even though it's the tail end of our show. You have been listening to a Metzine podcast, and we so appreciate you doing so. And uh, we have to thank Jacob Resnick, uh, first and foremost, of uh, Metzmerized Online, as well as MetsMiners.net, for joining us tonight. And without further ado, before we get to our last word, Jacob, we're going to pass it back to you for, uh, for a, a shameless plug, like we, we uh, like to say over here. Oh, well, yeah, just, I mean, first of all, thank you guys so much for, uh, for having me on tonight. I, uh, I love, uh, love talking Mets, uh, with, with, uh, anyone who will, uh, will listen to what I have to say. Um, and obviously, uh, you can catch my work online at, uh, MetsMerizeOnline.com, MetsMiners.net. You can, uh, follow me on Twitter at Jacob underscore Resnick, R-E-S-N-I-C-K. And, uh, you know, we have, we have a good time over there on that Twitter, as uh, I'm sure you guys are well aware. But uh, just thank you guys so much again. And, uh, you know, anytime, I'd be uh, glad to come back. You're always welcome back, Jacob. Thank you so much. And uh, we're going to first, we, we do like to do the last word, uh, kind of just what you're feeling, whether it's one word or, or a phrase. Uh, to summarize uh, uh, your Mets-themed feelings going into this uh, this All-Star break. So let's uh, go right back at you, Jacob, with uh, the last word. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I guess uh, kind of what I'm – I guess what I'm focused on is uh, is the future because you look at guys like Alonzo and McNeil and, and rather than, uh, you know, dwell on the, the – the, struggles that this team has had because those, those have been well documented. Um, you know, I really love to, uh, to focus on the things that this team has done right. And uh, Pete Alonzo, Jeff McNeil, Jacob DeGrom have been a huge part of that. And uh, like, uh, like I talked about a little while ago, those uh, guys down in uh, Columbia and the, uh, the guys that we just drafted this, uh, this past June, um, certainly um, guys to look forward to down the line. So I, uh, I'm uh, well aware that that you know times are hard right now, but um, you know some uh, some bright bright diamonds down the road. Awesome, Rich. Curious. I'm curious to see how the last 72 play out in terms of record. Um, I do think they're better than they played. No, I, I'm not delusional. I don't think they will be in the playoff hunt, but I do think they're better than they played and that they should give us 72 better games in the first 90. Also curious as to how they handle the trade deadline. Um, I've read that they'll sell anything that uh, isn't nailed down. I've read that they're actually going to try to be buyers. And I've also read that they might be quiet. You know, maybe you just have one move. Maybe it's just Wheeler and they're fairly quiet. So how this will play out, very curious to see. Mike? Rich stole the word right out of my mouth. So that said, I will say let's go Marlins because if, if it were for them, we'd be the worst team in the National League. Uh, so that's it. You know, it is what it is. Do you mean let's go Marlins uh, keep sucking? <laughs> you know what? I mean that in all ways possible. Do well, make us look bad, tank, you know, 
do whatever it is and, and, and just grow this narrative? I guess my final word is managing. Uh, something I didn't get to tonight was uh, some more talk about Joe Girardi, which I know would, would really please Rich over there. Um, and I, I, I know that it's not Mickey's fault, but it doesn't seem like he can uh, take lemons and make lemonade, if you will. And I don't know whether Joe Girardi would be able to handle it, uh, but he wouldn't be the first to come over from uh, having some uh, uh, coaching success with the Yankees and also have some success with the Mets. As much as Willie Randolph, uh, uh, there was a sour taste left in the way that ended, he still had a lot of success here uh, with the New York Mets. And it would be very interesting to see somebody with a reputation come in here uh, and, and see what they can do. Uh, uh, obviously, our cow uh, comes to mind, who obviously had a reputation before coming in here and failing. Um, but Joe Girardi is uh, not the Oakland Athletics. Uh, you, you know, it, it just, Joe Girardi has performed in New York is what I'm trying to say. And uh, he didn't always make the best moves, but he certainly made enough to keep the Yankees where they were. So... Managing is my final word. I don't think Mickey is long for this job. Maybe he proves us wrong going forward. We thought he was doing a better job at the tail end of uh, last season, but here we are again, and he has failed to command this team. And uh, I, I don't expect him to last uh, through the off season at least. So we'll see how that goes. And I'm very curious to see whether that is also a part of the uh, the the weeks coming up uh, leading up to the trade deadline, depending on, on, uh, you know, how they do over the next uh, week and a half or so. All right, guys. Well, uh, that is it for a Mets team podcast. Again, we thank you all so much for listening to us and uh, the only way to finish it. And I'll send it over to Mike this time to, uh, to take us out with the, the only way we know how. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Mets. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thank you again, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.